Jesus once said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is walking through a field and he stumbles upon a treasure lying in the field that is of absolutely infinite value. And he's an incredibly wise man. And so what he does is he digs a hole and he buries that treasure in the hole. And then he goes home and he sells everything that he has. And he takes that money and he goes and he purchases that field. And now, not only the field, but the treasure belong to him. And the point that Jesus was trying to make is that the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything we have and all that we are. And this morning I want to ask you, do you think of heaven that way? Do you think of heaven that way? If it is true that the kingdom of heaven is worth far more than everything that we own and all that we are, why does it honestly sometimes feel so distant? Why doesn't the thought of heaven have a deeper power in our lives and that when we would think of it, our heart would start to beat a little bit faster and joy would begin to come into our eyes and when we're facing hard things, we would think about heaven and find a new strength and endurance and motivation to move forward and to, 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 to follow God deeply. This morning I want to ask the question, why don't we long for heaven more? And I want to suggest that there's two main reasons that, at least for most of us, we don't think of heaven, we don't long for heaven too terribly often. And the first reason is this. I think we often do not notice how bad things are here. Oftentimes, we just don't notice how bad things are here. We're like children who have grown up in a dysfunctional home all of our lives, and finally we get a little bit older, and someone points out to us some of that dysfunction, and we say to them, well, what do you mean? That's just the family that I grew up in. That's all that I know. And in the same way, the world that we're in right now is just all that we know. It's, it's all the experience that we've had. But there are times in this world where we get a real glimpse of how bad life can be. I'll share this as an illustration, but more importantly, as a prayer request. There's a young woman who grew up in our church whose name is Becky Dykes. You may have known her as Becky Trahey. Her family is still involved here. Uh, she, two years ago, as a 30-year-old woman, I think, was told that she would have five weeks left to live. Uh, she had a terrible cancer that was ravaging her body. And she survived not only five weeks, but she survived to this day. She's in U of M Hospital uh, right now, even as we speak. And she's hooked up to a ventilator and tubes, and, and uh, she cannot speak. If you want to communicate with her, you can talk to her, and she needs to write things down on her notebook so that she can tell you what she thinks and feels. And she would tell you that every day she feels like she's been hit by a, a Mack truck. But if you ask her what the worst part is, she'll tell you that she's separated from her nine-year-old daughter. Uh, her nine-year-old daughter lives a couple of hours away from her with some other family members, and she's not even able to talk to her daughter on the phone because she can't speak. We get little tastes of life like that, little glimpses, and we realize that this world that we sometimes think is not that bad really often is. One of the reasons we don't long for heaven is because we don't realize how bad things are usually in our world right here. 
But the second reason the promise of heaven sometimes feels very distant, I think, is this, that we do not always realize how good things will one day be. We don't often realize how bad things are now and how good things will one day be. And that's really what I want to speak about this morning. I want to think this morning a little bit about the way that things are now and the way that they will be. And Romans 8 and Revelation 21 just perfectly captures that contrast. Romans 8 tells us a little bit about the way that things are now. And and Romans chapter 8 is probably one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It is just densely packed with descriptions of the world that we see around us, the reality, the difficulty of life, and the incredible hope that we have. And so I want to read this one more time and We could spend quite a bit of time in this little section, but I want to point out just three things. And Paul says again in Romans chapter 8, as Matt read for us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, I just want to highlight a a few big ideas that are captured in that little passage, but let me give you just a little bit of background first. Uh, The background is this, that in the beginning, God created this earth, this world, to be our permanent home. Uh, Had things gone uh, as they should have gone, we would all be living in a world that looked and felt and smelled just like this one today, except everything would be perfect. And the idea would be that we would live here. God created Adam and Eve, and of course, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve reject God. People have rejected him ever since, and out of that rejection, sin and death entered the world. And this world, instead of being a perfect place that was ideal for our life, it became a place that was hostile. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that what we are now is we are in bondage to decay. Bondage to decay, that's quite an image. I remember an illustration that I heard about that little phrase years ago when I was taking some junior hires to camp. Uh, And one thing you should know about junior high camp is that the speakers that they get for junior high camp are like a very different breed of people. They're wonderful people, but they have a, a very difficult job because they've got to speak to these junior hires usually twice a day and usually for about 40 minutes. Now, junior high boy can only pay attention physiologically for about 20 minutes, but they give these speakers 40 twice a day. So what happens is these junior high speakers have to come up with illustrations that kind of keep their attention for this whole week twice a day for 40 minutes. It's sort of a difficult thing. Well, when you go to junior high camp and you listen to junior high teachers speak, sometimes what they will do is they will give these illustrations that are 
just a little out there, okay? Usually they'll give one at the beginning of the week to kind of set the tone, and maybe one at the end of the week because they know that everybody's asleep. And they'll say to the junior hires, they'll say, you know, this next story that I'm going to, to tell you, um, you're a pretty mature group, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it to you. But um, usually, you know, I wouldn't share this with junior hires. That usually happens once during the week. And I remember this one guy's illustration on this passage was like that. It was kind of slightly too graphic for junior high, and it was a very questionable accuracy. I, I, I can't believe that it was actually true. And it is an illustration that is a little too graphic for a Sunday morning, too. But you guys are a pr- pretty mature group, so I'm going <laughs> to share it with you this morning. What the guy said is that there's this island that exists someplace, a mysterious island, which is very convenient, right? It's this island, and on this island, if you were to murder someone, the punishment for murdering that person is that they would take the dead body of the person that you had just killed, and they would strap it to your back, and they would chain it to you, okay? This was the punishment. And what would happen, I hope you're not too squeamish, what would happen is the body that was on your back would start to decay. And over time, he very graphically illustrated for us, over time, that decay would spread from the dead body onto you, and you would die yourself. And there was nothing that you could do because you were in bondage to this body. Now, I think the source text that this guy used for that illustration might have been a comic book. But... I've remembered that illustration for 10 or 12 years. It it really is a decent illustration for this passage. The idea that Paul uses when he says we are in bondage to decay is that we are stuck on a place that is dying. We are stuck in a world that is decaying, and we see that through sickness and death and the exhaustion that we feel almost every day. Pain and isolation, it's just the norm of this place. And try, as hard as we might, to arrange our lives differently. There is nothing that we can do to escape it. The world around us is decaying, and that decay has spread into our lives too. And we can't escape. And what he says here is that all of creation is waiting for a time when that would change. All of creation is like that little kid in the back seat on a long trip who keeps saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can we please just get there? That's what Paul is illustrating, that everything in the world is saying it is time for a change. And he says that all of creation groans for a change. Now, he's not talking that it literally does, like the earth is is groaning literally. He's using personification But when you look around, you do see that in nature. Like a person who maybe is allergic to peanuts, and if they eat a peanut, their skin gets red and puffy. Creation is a little bit like skin. When there's a problem with it, it breaks out. Now, we look around at nature, and for the most part, it's beautiful and wonderful, and and much of it is as it ought to be. But nature is also harsh and deadly. We live in a world where there are earthquakes and there are volcanoes and there are weeds and thorns. There are people all over the world who cannot grow food. There's diseases and there are floods and famine. And it is like our world is allergic to sin. 
And some of those things are, are breaking out. All of creation is groaning, and it's trying to show us in some way that things are not the way that they should be. And when we listen to the news and we hear a report about a tornado that comes through a town and 25 people are killed, or an earthquake, or the tsunami that happened a few years ago, we recognize and realize the earth is not the way it should be. And Paul goes on and he says it's not just creation that is groaning. He says it's we ourselves who are groaning inwardly. The children of God, Paul says, know that there's something wrong. We can feel it in our hearts. Uh, When I was in second grade or so, I I went away to summer camp. And um, I remember this pretty vividly, actually. I'd just gotten done swimming with the rest of the camp. And I was walking back to my cabin And all of a sudden, I had this ache that was in my stomach. It was like a physical pain. And what I realized it was, was I just really missed home. And I went and I sat behind my cabin and I cried. And then I didn't want to be seen by anybody else. And so I went into my cabin and I laid down in my sleeping bag. And I cried and I thought about home. And my counselor, who I think must have been a very good counselor, this is the only thing I remember about him, He came into my cabin to check on me, and he said, you know, Paul, are are you okay? And I told him, um, I told him, yeah, just give me a little while. I just have a really bad stomachache. I I didn't want to tell him that I was homesick. But the truth was, I was. And I think that is how we feel sometimes here. Sometimes Christians feel very alone. Sometimes we feel very empty. Sometimes our stomach aches when we think about our lives and the way that this world is. Sometimes, even though everything in our life could be arranged perfectly and we're on a vacation even that we've been longing for, something inside of us just does not feel right. There's something inside of us that groans inwardly. And sometimes what happens is Christians will think, if they have this sense that things just aren't right and they they don't feel good, they feel a little sick, they they think there must be something that's wrong with me because I don't feel good about everything. Or they think there's something that must be wrong with God. I must not be trusting Him enough or He must not be coming through or He's not there. Sometimes they think there's something wrong with them or wrong with God. But in some cases, it's just that the person is homesick. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, it is natural and normal for you to groan. It is natural and normal for you to feel like that child in the back of the seat. Can we please just get there? Are we there yet? I'm tired of this. I want a change. And that groaning in the world and that groaning in us is meant to remind us that there's something more. There's something coming. Paul says the way that the world is, is it's like bondage to decay. That seems a little extreme to us, that language. That's because we live in it. That's because it's all we ever know. But the Bible promises that this will not be the way that things will always be. Our experience in life now is going to change. And so what God does is he initiates this plan to free us and to forgive us. 
You could almost think of John 3.16, a passage that we're all so familiar with, many of us are familiar with, as being almost the, the vision, the purpose sentence of everything that he's doing in our world and in, in people's lives. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die for us, to be crucified for our sins, that whoever would believe in him would never die but have eternal life. And the offer that God gives to each person everywhere, you and I today, is that if we believe, if we trust what Jesus has done, we will never die. We will never die. And today, what God offers people is new hearts, forgiveness of sin, freedom, the promise of a future. But one day, he says, I will make all things new. There will be a day when God will conquer and destroy sin and death, and it is going to be epic. And then everything will fall quiet, and we will be with him. Uh, Revelation 21, if you can flip there, is kind of a picture of this, and it's an amazing picture. Revelation 21 I'm going to read for you again just those few verses. This is the Apostle John who is having a vision. He gets a little glimpse. And this is our final home. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. Now, what we get is a little glimpse here of the way that things will be. And the thing is, God doesn't tell us everything. He just tells us what we need to know for now. And what this passage describes is a little bit difficult to understand, but what we know is that God is going to change heaven and earth in some kind of a fundamental way. We don't know what the extent of it will be exactly yet, but we do know that it doesn't describe a place that's just a bunch of clouds that everybody sits on and we all play harps together. That doesn't sound like heaven to most of us. What we know from this passage is that our, our future home will be an actual physical place. There's going to be people there and activities that will happen there, movement and responsibility. It will be a place of life. But things will be changed in some way. Again, we don't know the extent. But it seems that the earth will still be round, will still be on the earth. The earth will not have a sea. And there will be a joining of heaven and earth. 
there will no longer be any separation between heaven and earth. There won't be a distinction. They'll be together. And John describes himself looking up, and what he sees is he sees a great city that is descending from heaven. It is coming to earth. Now God will dwell with people. And the city is called New Jerusalem. Very different than the old Jerusalem in the Bible, but it's the perfect city. It is the heavenly city. It's descending from heaven, and John says it is like a bride who is adorned for her husband. Okay, there's nothing more beautiful in the world than the bride coming down the aisle, right? People cry when they see that because it's so beautiful. And John says that's kind of what this city is like. It's stunning and magnificent. And he even says that the foundations of this city, which he can see because it's still in the air coming down, but eventually it will be on the ground. He says the foundations of this city are filled with jewels of all kinds. He says he sees jasper and sapphire and emerald and amethyst and all of these precious jewels. And what's so interesting about that is that those jewels are just in the foundation. I mean, the foundation is something that eventually is buried underground and just supports the structure. You don't even see the foundation. But we're led to think if the foundation of this city is that beautiful, the stuff that is underground that we will never see, what must the city itself be like? Some of you will have had the same experience as I did. Do you remember seeing The Wizard of Oz for the first time? And you watch that movie, and, you know, of course, Dorothy is, is walking down that golden path, and it's very dangerous, especially as a child to you. You know, you've got that wicked witch who could show up at any time, and those, those trees, remember the trees? Those things were freaky. And then there's a scene in the movie where you see for the first time the Emerald City. Remember seeing that as the first time when, I, when you were a kid? And you remember thinking to yourself, wow. Now, it's really cheesy if you go and, and look at it now. I mean, it's like some artist drew it with a colored pencil. It looks terrible. But when you were a kid, you see that city and you think, wow, that must be a place of such safety and joy and power and magnificence. And when John looks up at that city, that's how he feels. And the picture of heaven is that that city will be our home. Or at least it will be the capital city of our home. It is a real place, and it is the place that God dwells, and we're told that city has no gates. We can come and go as we want. And then John says this. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying something, okay? What I want you to see from this verse, this is verse 3, is he says the very same thing four times. When the Bible repeats itself, you know that it's saying something incredibly important, and here it is as well. It repeats the same thing in different ways four times. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's one. He will dwell with them. That's two. And they will be his people. That's three. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's four. John says four times in one sentence, we will be with God. Now this morning is the final morning of a series that we've been doing for a number of weeks called Coram Deo. 
what quorum Deo means is it means face to face. And what we've done is we've looked all throughout the Bible, starting at the beginning and now to the end, of 16 people who actually got to see God face to face. We talked about the Apostle Paul last week, who was walking down a road and, and God appeared to him in a great light in the great light and it transformed his life. And we looked at Thomas a few weeks ago who doubted Jesus and, and Jesus said, Come close to me. Let me speak to your doubts. We talked about Judas who betrayed God, and yet Jesus, even at the time of his betrayal, calls him a friend. Isaiah, who went to the throne room of God, and he thought that he was going to disintegrate because God was so great and powerful, but God cleanses him and gives him a mission. Moses, who God meets with to free a nation. Jacob, who was a deceiver that God changed his heart and gave him a new name. And Abraham, where uh, the promises all began, he met with God face to face. And these people saw God, and he was, good to, he was good to them. But you know the people in the Bible who had it the best? Of all the people who have ever lived, those who had it the best were Adam and Eve. Right before they messed up. Right before Adam and Eve sinned, they walked with God in the cool of the garden. And what you have described at the very beginning is a relationship with God that is intimate and it's perfect. It's, it's the relationship with him that we're meant to experience. And the Bible opens with these two people who enjoy God and walk with him perfectly. And what I want you to see is that the Bible closes with that same thing. And it closes with those people not being just Adam and Eve, but all of God's people. All of those whom Jesus has redeemed, they enjoy God face to face the way that we were meant to. One day we're told God's people will be Corandeo. They will live face to face with him. Now, it's really hard for us to grasp what that would mean. And I've thought about this passage all week, and it's just sort of tough to get my head around. It's one of the mysteries of heaven. I think one of the things that Paul does to help us, or excuse me, John does to help us a bit with this, is he gives us a few hints here in this passage of what that will mean and look like. What he says it will mean and look like is four things. He says that there will be no more death. Life with God means no more death. It means no more mourning. It means no more crying. And it means no more pain. That's what life with God is like. And this morning, I want to think about just one of those, one of those pieces briefly. I want to think about what it would mean to have no more crying. No more crying. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with that in this passage the problem is that it says that God will wipe every tear from our eye, but it also says that there will be no more crying. So how can you have no more crying and have God wiping every tear from your eye? Well, it would seem that when we come to our final home, which is described here in Revelation 21, the way that we will come in is weeping. When we come into our final home, we will arrive weeping. It's hard to say exactly why that is, but here's my guess. 
some of you have seen the show Extreme Home Makeover before, and you're probably familiar with how that show works. It's almost the same every episode. It begins with a family who lives in a home that's not suitable to them, and the family has a really difficult situation in life. It's usually something very heartbreaking. And so what happens is the team goes into this house, they send all of this, the members of this family away on vacation, then they rebuild the house in some elaborate, wonderful way. It all gets remodeled. Sometimes they tear the whole thing down and they build a new one. And then they bring this family back and they reveal to them their new home. And the people who are in this home, as soon as they see it, they just start weeping. Have you ever seen that? I mean, sometimes they fall on the ground. And what's happening for them in that moment, I think, is that all of the bad things that they've experienced in life, all of the difficulty of their past struggle, kind of collides with this new wonderful reality that they see in front of them. And those two things, that that pain and also that joy, bring about for them weeping. I think that's how we arrive in heaven. I think we arrive in heaven weeping at past sorrows and future joys. But what, what John tells us is something so wonderful. He says, these will be the last tears you ever shed. And that God will reach down in the most personal, intimate way. And he will wipe those tears. He will dry them. And you will never cry again. One of the hardest realities about life, I think, is that there are some sorrows in life that will never be fully resolved. There are some sorrows in all of our lives that won't be fully resolved. I shared a story a few months ago about um, losing my best friend in sixth grade. Some of you might remember it. I said something really kind of mean about my best friend's brother. And my best friend was so offended by that that he never spoke to me again. And a couple of years later, he was killed in a freak accident. And so that relationship never got repaired. And I was saying a few uh, months ago that out of that, what happened to me is I ended up making different friends. And the different friends that I made had a hugely good impact on my life. And so I was able to look back on what had happened and see that God brought some good out of it. But, you know, the truth about that whole thing is that when I think of that whole situation and what I said to that friend, even though I only think about it maybe once a year, doesn't come to mind very often, it still hurts. I think about that and I still feel badly about what I said. And I think it always is going to hurt because my friend is dead and there's no way that I can ever resolve this thing that has happened with him. And I'm 95% of the way there, but there's still 5% that it's like I can't, I can't solve. I can't, I can't make it right. And there are so many things in life that are, right, that are like that. You, know, you may have had a conflict with somebody, and you've done everything that you could do to try to resolve it on their end, but they will not resolve it on theirs. And no matter what you try to do, it's like it, it can't be taken care of. It can't be figured out. It can't be fully dealt with in your life. There may be some disappointment of yours in life, something you wanted so bad out of life that you never received, and you had your heart set on it. Even though maybe you're most of the way over it, 
you never will be all the way. We all have things like that in life. Rejections that we face, hurt feelings, ways that we've been wronged, losses of people that we loved, broken relationships, misunderstandings that we can't go back and mend, guilt for decisions that we've made, things in life that we would give anything to go back and rewind and change, but we know that we can't. And there are some problems in life that cannot be tied up in a neat little bow. There are problems in life that will never be 100% taken care of. And there are some wounds in life that will never fully heal until heaven. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't really try to trust God with those things. We should. I'm not saying that God can't heal us of those things. He does. He will. I'm not saying we shouldn't find help and encouragement and try to restore those things. And I'm certainly not saying that we should just give up and sort of stuff those feelings until heaven. But the truth of this world is that not every lemon that we receive in life ends up tasting like lemonade. Sometimes I think what people can have the idea of is that life gives us lemons and then God has like a sugar packet that he pulls on in our life. And that at some point we realize something good and then everything's figured out and taken care of. But just because God works all things for good doesn't mean it always feels good in this life. If everything got resolved in this life, there would be no reason for God to have to wipe our tears. David was a person who endured many hardships in life. You may know him. He wrote many of the Psalms. Uh, David lost his best friend in battle. Uh, David was hunted by a man who was very evil for quite some time. David, his own son, betrayed him and tried to steal his kingdom, he faced horrible things. And he was a man who cried a lot. He was a very soft-hearted, tender man, and yet a very strong man. In Psalm 56, David says that God has collected his tears in a bottle. And he said that God writes them in his book. And what he really felt of God was that God was taking notes on all of the painful things that he was experiencing in life. And for each one of us, we don't know what our sorrows are exactly. Some of us know sorrows of each other. Some of us don't. Everybody has them. Everybody has things in their life that are unresolved. Everybody has wounds that haven't healed. But these things, the Bible says, are important to God. David says, it's like God wrote down all of my things that are like that. And at this moment, I believe that what God will do is he will deal tenderly and personally and finally with each one of those wounds. And that when God wipes our tears in that moment, I don't know what it will be, a change in perspective that we'll receive or some sort of supernatural grace or maybe just an overwhelming sense of the power of his love for us. 
But like a mother wipes the tears from her child, children of God, there will be a day when he wipes your tears too. And you will never cry again. And the reason you will never cry again is because everything in your life now that brings tears to your eye will be resolved. And the life that you will live will be one that there is no reason to cry in. Death, our great enemy, will be no more. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more pain, minor or major. And that's a world that for us is almost impossible for us to imagine. God makes us this promise. The old things, the stuff that we are used to now, is going to pass away, and God is going to make all things new. That word new, it's not a word that means time. It's not new in time. It's new in quality. Uh, The word new in this passage is like a constant state of newness. God will make all things new, and they will stay that way, is what he's trying to say. And what he's saying is, we will have a new life that will always feel like new life. New joy that will always feel like new joy. New bodies that will always feel like new bodies. We'll have new songs and new adventures and new discoveries. And we will have a new home that will always feel new. And a new, different kind of relationship that will always feel fresh and new. It will be the place that we belong. The Bible says, no eye has seen No ear has heard. No mind can even conceive what God has in store for those who love him. And God sent his own son to give us this. Jesus gave his blood. He gave his sweat. He gave his tears. His body was broken and bloodied for us so that if we would believe, if we would trust in what he's done for us, He has made a way by his work on the cross that this place that John describes in Revelation 21, it really is our destiny. This really is our home. And as Paul writes elsewhere, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing can take it away. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we look at the world around us and we look at our lives and what you say in Romans 8 just feels like it's our experience. We groan. We long for things to be different. We long for life to be settled. We long for home. And we thank you that you promise us a place that's beyond our imagining. We thank you that there will one day be a world where there is no death, there are no tears, there is no mourning, and there is no pain. Father, we think about a place like that and we realize it's just beyond our understanding. And we don't deserve to live in a world that's like that. Thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to die for our sins so that that might be our home and that might be our future. 
We pray that that might give us hope and encouragement and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.